Boom. So we are live. So let me jump in and introduce you. So everybody, I am so honored. I, I am literally a little bit of a fanboy. I've watched thousands of hours of Raul Paul's videos over time and a big fan of the way he frames up the world. But Raul is a, he's the CEO of Real Vision and he's a former hedge fund manager who retired at 36 and beat me by about 14 years. Uh, and he now runs Real Vision, which is a financial media company. And I've been a subscriber to Real Vision for a long time. And the links will be below for his Real Vision and his Twitter handle as well. But what really fascinates me about Raul is he co-managed hedge funds. He advises, you know, high net worth families, macro investors, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, etc., and other elite investors. And by the way, Real Vision itself, just a quick blurb, because uh, I've gotten a lot from it over time. They basically help understand the future or help you understand the future of everything, then understand digital assets, et cetera, et cetera. Now, they, I think Real Vision has over 100,000 members right now and growing very quickly. They, they launch Brilliant Contact five times a week, interview the best of the best, including people like Vitalik Buterin, Gary Vaynerchuk, Kate Long, Gavin Woods, you name it, all the people you need to hear from. So check that out below. And with that, let's get started. Raul, how are you this morning? I'm fantastic. How are you? Yeah, good. You look refreshed after your vacation. I know you were on the I road. Am, I am refreshed. I am yeah. refreshed. But could you get off Twitter? Not quite. I had to hide <laughs> from my wife, but I, I'm, but I managed to stay on Twitter. Awesome. So a quick intro as to our little journey today. It's going to be fast and action-packed. I'm going to try to tackle what I know is on most people's minds because I'm very in touch with what people are interested in hearing about. So I think we're going to talk at the very beginning a little bit about TA, then a little bit about Bitcoin cycles in general, where you see them going, touch on Ethereum, your conviction in that, and compare Ethereum to some maybe ETH killers, a little bit of proof of work, layer twos, roll-ups, et cetera. Then we'll touch on the metaverse briefly, and then we'll go into some macro uh, direction, if that's okay with you, and some fun questions at the very end. Let's do it. All right. So I, first of all, I love the way you see patterns in charts and you look at history and you have all these cool things you put up on Bloomberg. And I'd like to ask you, and I've been challenged by this as well. I, I love TA myself, and I look at a lot of patterns, and I see things that sometimes other people don't see. But when you look at uh, TA, how much is psychology in TA versus the self-fulfilling prophecy versus probability theory, et cetera? How, how do you view TA, and why does TA work? So I generally have a rule of thumb, which is not to overthink things. Hmm. TA is all of those things but really what it is is it gives you a instant understanding of the psychology of the people involved now as we know there can be great companies that don't go up in value and there can be shitty companies that that um, go up in value it's all about psychology of the investors themselves so a chart tells you a story it tells you a story of where it came from and where it is now and that tends to give you some probabilities, not, I mean, you could probably get it down to mathematical if you're Renaissance capital or something like that. But I, I think of it in terms of probabilities of the likelihoods of certain patterns playing out over time. And there's certain patterns that I find incredibly useful. I basically label everything that's a, like a some sort of triangle pattern. I just call them wedges. Yep. People are like, that's a flag. I'm like, I don't care. For me, it looks like a wedge. And that to me, 
is the highest probability continuation pattern of all. I quite like head and shoulders tops. I keep it pretty simple. Yeah. Then I use some technical indicators like DMARC for timing and understanding where I am in a trend. Um, and it's as simple as that. But why charts is I can basically look at anything and start formulating an opinion around it. And the opinion doesn't have to be, is this a good company or a bad company? That's bottoms up stock picking. That's a different thing. It's, is this a decent investment or not a decent investment? Or is there an opportunity to make money out of this or not? And that's what it is. And I learned that trick. I realize I'm a very visual person. I see everything in my head. So I'm always carrying around a mental model and I see it. It's kind of a 3D thing. And so charts just fit into that super easy. And then I realized that almost everybody I know in macro, the, the kind of investing that I do, which is we look at kind of all asset classes around the world and their linkages to global economies. Almost everybody who comes into that space comes at it via charts. Because yeah. there's simply too much to, to analyze and too much to hold in your head that the charts make it super helpful. Awesome. Speaking of charts and patterns, if, if we look at uh, Bitcoin's correlation to the S&P 500, it seems to have increased over the last couple of weeks. And the question is, um, I, I believe ultimately Bitcoin could become a safe haven risk off asset. Right now, it's not. And do you ever see a time coming where it does become that risk off flight to safety asset in the future? It can't do for the time being because it has two properties. One is this, call it pristine collateral. The other is this call option on the future, which is this network adoption model of blockchain and crypto and Bitcoin itself. It cannot have the attributes of being like bonds, a risk off when it's still got that call option element. Over time, once it matures and that call option's in the money, i.e. the network's mature, billions of people own it, it'll change its attributes and be closer to gold. I mean, gold's not a perfect hedge either. Bonds actually work really well for that. Crypto won't work perfectly well for that. And we need to be careful of looking at correlations over two short-term time periods if you're looking at a longer-term trend because these correlations phase in and out. Um, it's what's known as Bayesian in its distribution means it shifts its correlation from one asset to another. Exactly. Well, you just tripped on the bond, bond topic. So regarding the Bitcoin bond story, I know bonds have a black eye out there in the market, a lot of negative yielding stuff. Do you think... Bitcoin bonds have legs, the stuff that El Salvador is doing right now, or is that just a... Well, that's just a bond that's backed by Bitcoin. More interestingly, is going to be a long-term yield curve in Bitcoin. So I own Bitcoin, or I'm a pension fund that owns Bitcoin, and I want to... I know I'm not going to take it off my balance sheet, and therefore I want to get a yield for holding it. You know, we've got that, certainly in Ethereum, but not that far out yet. Mm -hmm. But you need... You need to be compensated for holding an asset for an extended period of time. Um, so it's coming, and the Bitcoin bond was part of that, but it's not really that. Ye uh, ETH staking is definitely closer to that. Um, but we want to see different points of a curve, because if anybody understands that short-term interest rates are different to long-term interest rates, because there's different risks, one being inflation risks over the long run versus the short run, uh, growth risks, stuff like that. Awesome. So there was a, a time when you were kind of a very big Bitcoin bull. I know you still are. 
But then at some stage, the penny dropped and you flipped over to very heavy conviction on Ethereum. And one of the things I like about you is I believe in the same thing. Uh, but I believe in picking, say, three assets, three equities, three cryptos and going in hard and then trading pairs between them. How, when did the penny drop for you to move away from Bitcoin? I know you sold all your gold, you moved into Bitcoin, then you <laughs> sold a lot of your Bitcoin, you moved into Ethereum. But when was that tipping point? It was about October 2020 that I had been following the Ethereum chart and I looked at it and thought, this looks like it's going to break out. I then looked at the Bitcoin Ethereum chart and I realized that it was forming a pattern that looked like it was going to break out. So I'm using my probabilistic odds and charts, which is what we talked about at the beginning, and thought, this looks interesting. So I post it on Twitter. And what happens was, an immense backlash. <laughs> I know that. How dare you? Yeah. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. So when somebody does something like that to say, I refuse you to think along those lines, I will always go down that, you know, I'm a contrarian by nature. Me too. So yeah. then I started looking at Bitcoin. Then I looked at the chart of Ethereum when it had the same number of wallet addresses as Bitcoin. And I realized it's exactly the same price. I'm like, huh. And the charts look identical. I'm like, huh. And then I started looking at other assets and they started looking like they were Bitcoin, but from the 2017 cycle and Bitcoin looked like, um, and Ethereum looked like Bitcoin from the, from the 2017 cycle. And I'm like, why do these all look the same? And then I realized that it was to do with Metcalfe's law and network adoption models and that they were all following the same path. And therefore, there was no difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum from an investor's point of view. You may have a philosophical opinion, but at this phase, when we're talking about the adoption of these assets, they're all the same. And it all depends on what's getting the adoption for whatever purposes, whatever reason. You know, Solana has adoption for a different reason than Ethereum does. That is a different reason to Bitcoin. Doesn't matter. So that's when I started allocating to Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, because I now understood a pricing model understood the whole space in, in more detail. And I realized that almost nobody else was seeing it in these terms. Um, and then as I started getting uh, conviction in the price, I, I was being rewarded for taking the bet. I started switching more and more out. Um, and then my final anticipation was the, the action that happened today, which was finally the ETH Bitcoin chart broke that 0 0.08 level which I had been expecting because I knew that chart pattern. That's the yep. classic wedge pattern that I keep talking exactly. about. Yeah. I knew that the probability was extremely high. So therefore I had to reduce my Bitcoin as much as possible. Not that I don't like Bitcoin to your point. It's because I loved Ethereum more at this point. And there'll be another point in another couple of years. Well, I won't, I'll be poo-pooing Ethereum because I find something else with a bigger opportunity. I'm an investor. Yeah, it's funny. If you saw my trading view, I have an alarm that goes off when that triggers. It's like, it's like, okay, here we go, breakout time. And I tweeted it this morning immediately when it happened. That's super interesting. And I, I again, I, I love the way you look at patterns. But when I look at Bitcoin, say, for example, in 2013, I see 2021 cycle. Now, plan B yes. also uh, talks kind of within the six to 12 month time frame, his stock to flow model is kind of representing the flow where Bitcoin could go. And also you have groups like Fidelity looking at 1970s gold and a guy called TechDev and others. So 
If I had to ask you of those three, Bitcoin 2013 pattern, Plan B, Stock to Flow, or 1970s Gold from Fidelity, which would you pick? Or a mix of all three? I think that I first wrote a paper on the stock to flow of Bitcoin in 2013 um, versus gold. So I understand that. And when Plan B did it properly, because he's a much smarter guy than me, um, I intuitively understand what he was doing. And I thought it was genius. And I still think it gives us a good framework. Mm. We all know that nothing works perfectly, mm. but it gives us a very good framework of understanding. I think it's also showing essentially Metcalfe's law within that. So fine. I have been using the 2013 Bitcoin chart for a year and a half now. Mm. It's worked very well. I also know that those things fail just when you expect them the most to work. Yeah. But I, it gives me conviction. So I'm looking at the chart pattern. I'm looking at the flow from all the institutions I'm seeing. I'm looking at the um, stock to flow, Metcalfe's law, that chart pattern from 2013. It's backed up by the ETH chart pattern versus Bitcoin. And so that's going to give me about the most conviction. I only saw the gold chart recently. Paul Tudor Jones had alluded to it before. Um, and I saw the gold chart recently and it's like, yeah, these are yeah. all crowd-based behavioral patterns that are playing out. Also with the inflationary backdrop. Now, speaking of uh, the stock-to-flow model, obviously that's a supply-side model, and that backs directly into the network effect, Metcalfe's law. So have you tried to mash them back into one from the other? No, but I think they're the same thing. I'm not yeah. smart enough to do it, but intuitively, I actually think they're probably the same thing. Awesome. Um, which gives you, which is why they both work, because I think they're just different representations of the same um, attributes. Awesome. So this cycle, let's talk about the cycles right now and where we are. A lot of people, like we know everything is different and I'm very relieved to see that the cycle is different. I'm very, I was actually one of the few people that was relieved to see plan B's model fail because I think the longer we run, the more money comes into the space and the higher we ultimately go. I think things like blow off tops are very dangerous and not healthy for the market. So a lot of people are still talking about, oh, well, we're going to have this huge hyperbolic parabolic run up and then an 85% retracement and it's all going to happen by 25th of December. Boom. It's, it's obviously not going to happen. It's very, very different because of sovereigns and all the money and institutions coming in. What's your take on cycles this time around? So I do think we get a big run into end of year. And we will probably start to see a sell-off early Jan or, or late deck because people are expecting something. And I think it will be wholeheartedly wrong because I see nothing but a wall of money coming in in, in Jan, Feb, March. Yeah. Um, I also think that the ETH staking cycle has changed the structure of markets. It's, it may even be more dominant eventually than the Bitcoin halving cycle. And when most people think they figured it out, it all changes. It happens yeah. endlessly. So I'm thinking, what is the path of most pain? Because every person now thinks, well, what I'll do is I'll reduce my exposure in December, I'll keep hold of some, and, um, and then I'll buy it back at the bottom when it's down 80%. I know how to do this. So the likelihood is it doesn't go down that far. Yeah. And it repeats what we saw this year, which was big run, 
decent sized sell off, takes six months before it takes out the high, screams for a new high again. Everyone panics in, sells off again, and it keeps going up in this jagged pattern to new highs because we're now at the teeth of the adoption curve. Yeah. You know, central bank digital currencies, institutions, you know, Twitter, Facebook, everybody's starting to see the adoption. So I think it's it's going to change the structure and it's going to be a bit harder because we had this nice, neat narrative that I think is going to fall apart. Yeah, I like that actually, because I look at S curves as well as adoption curves and we're at that 10% tipping point. I think we have 200 million people who have adopted the space out of 8 billion. So we're still super early, but it's going to start going vertical real fast. And even if you look at, say, the number of active Ethereum addresses, it's only 10 million. <laughs> There's so much room to run. And also, j- just to put it in perspective, yeah. the, the network growth is currently at about 113% a year across the whole digital asset ecosystem. Right, at 150, 200 million users, we get to a billion people by 2024. That's the nature of exponential maths. Yeah. Now, a billion people from here, we can't get our heads around it. Yeah. But that's why I don't think we can have the 80% fall. Exactly. And it's better to have that kind of wick-off, like almost jagged upward move. Yeah, and I do think we will probably have that 90% fall in NFTs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> because there is no in, institutional yeah. adoption of NFTs yet. Yeah, yet. very, very true. It's, it's retail. Okay, I'm going to switch gears and talk about the elephant in the room, Ethereum, and your conviction on Ethereum. So I've been building out detailed pricing models for Ethereum since early 2020. I'm still scratching my head as how I was buying Ethereum under 200 last year. It's like, are you kidding me? You know, people people just expect so much in this space. It's bizarre. But according to my price prediction models, I see a 40K ETH now in the year 2027. And I know it's if things go exponential and we hit that billion users, of course, 100 million active users on Ethereum, we're going to get there a lot sooner. But a lot of people, you know, you did talk about a 40K ETH um, and different timelines. And I know that's been tempered a little bit over time. But w- any update on where you see that, this run, and is it all a so, function of adoption? Again, I'm using base case probabilities, no certainties. I still think ETH finishes this year closer to 15,000 than to 10,000. Yeah. Um, just by the nature of what is actually going on right now and the chart patterns and, you know, the people who are coming into the space. I actually still see ETH potentially, the small probability upside is that it hits 40,000 by the summer. That's because of the staking cycle and how the charts look and using the log chart, extending it forwards and a number of things give me that. It's not my base case. My base case would be 20,000 ETH by March at the latest. Yeah. So I see, obviously, ETH is a much faster horse than Bitcoin. Bitcoin's a much bigger machine. But I always spoke about the 10 to 1 ratio. We're kind of like at not at that yet. We're at the 12 and a half mark. But I see, you know, if we do see a 10K ETH, I always see we'll be 100K Bitcoin, 20K ETH, 200K Bitcoin. Do you look at a similar type of ratio between both or do you think they're discrete? I think the ratio is changing and it's going to go to something significantly different than. So if it's 12 now, it probably goes to seven, six. So I think. That's that what that bit, ETH Bitcoin chart is telling me. So mm. I think that relationship is going to shift over time. Um, Six is flipping territory. Yes, exactly. I think we're going <laughs> to, my guess is this cycle, yeah. 
you know, we, we don't get a proper elongated bear market. And by an elongated bear market, I'm not talking down 80, I'm talking about down 50 and it stays down for nine months and bores everybody out kind of thing. Um, I, don't th I think that happens when the flippening happens and we'll readjust again and Bitcoin will become the larger. Effort. I think the flippening has a high, not a high probability, a decent probability Yeah. in the, in the next nine months. I have this weird analogy I'm going to share with you, but I call it the murderer's row. And it comes from uh, mixed martial arts, the UFC. So, you know, when, when the sport is new, the competitors aren't as sophisticated, aren't as well-rounded, etc. Think of a trilemma. Now, how does Ethereum stay ahead of this murderer's row of faster, cheaper chains that are already ETH 2.0 already? Does that concern you at all? Or does network effect combat that? Um, the actual answer is I don't care. Of course, there are going ETH's dominance, like Bitcoin's dominance, will fall over time because mm -hmm. new technology comes into the space and they solve different problems and they have different orders of centralization versus decentralization as trade-offs. And that's absolutely fine. So the Bitcoin dominance is going to diminish over time. ETH dominance will diminish over time. Sol's dominance versus others will diminish over time because this space is, is changing in structure. So I don't have an issue with that. I'm not an ETH person. I'm just like, this is the best horse to back, best risk-adjusted return. I'm a crypto maximalist. I totally believe that this is the future of all digital value. But my job is to select which horse to back and when. My job is not to come at this with a philosophy of it can only be one. You know, this is not Highlander here. This is, we're in the investment business. Um, yeah. And we're also in the business of changing the world's business models and, you know, distributing wealth and all of that stuff. So let it play out how it plays out. But in terms of your investment conviction right now, in terms of your position, you're with your options, you're 82% ETH, which is very heavy conviction in my opinion yes and i so. think that solana will outperform eth in this cycle yeah and i think that terra will outperform eth so why don't i have all my money in those because i have less certainty because the network effects are less pronounced so awesome. therefore i have to have a smaller bet yep exactly. but i don't think eth stops going up the whole space is going up 100x over the next 10 years so you know you can back a lot of different horses and still make money I agree. We see some of that happening. In fact, we see some things that uh, go up and the question is, why are they going up? So let's switch gears. Let's switch. Talk about the, I'm a big fan of the Lindy effect. So you did mention Sol. Ethereum has four times more Lindy than Sol. Okay. Think of Solana being a year and a half old, Ethereum being what, maybe seven years. And that is obviously a big first mover advantage. There's more assets in Ethereum. Uh, it's trusted because it's proven the test of time. However, the interesting thing to me is, yeah, it's proof of work. Now we're switching to proof of stake. Does that reset the Lindy clock? For example, Solana is technically older than Ethereum from a proof of stake basis. Does it matter? I don't think so. I think it is part of the Lindy. So it's another test. What is the robustness of the network? The network is actually not the technology, it's the people that use it. That's yep. the key point here. So if it continues to attract nodes and interconnections between the nodes 
in its new format, then it survived yet another Lindy test. We saw this exact same thing with Bitcoin in 2017 with the forking wars. And that was a the biggest Lindy test. In fact, it threw me off Bitcoin. I, I, I sold, you know, I bought Bitcoin at 200 um, back in 2013, sold it in 2017 for two and a half thousand um, early because of this. And I'm like, is it going to survive this S-curve moment or not? And I wasn't sure. So I couldn't commit capital to it. Now, is Ethereum going to survive this S-curve moment? The probability is, is high because of the network effects and how robust they are, but it's not certain. So would I want to reduce my ETH exposure after we've gone into this? Probably. Are there other opportunities in different areas in crypto? Of course. Yep. You, you, you stepped, <laughs> you're almost guiding this conversation. Um, ETH versus Sol, the other elephant in the room, you mentioned it is the Solana is the ETH of this cycle a couple of times, which I, which I agree. I do believe I've spent, I had a very big bag of uh, Ethereum that I built in 2020, early 2020. I've been in Bitcoin since 2017. And then I was very concerned with the protection of my Ethereum bag. So I spent a long time, and I'm talking a long time, looking for the supposed ETH killer. Now, per all of our detailed analysis, we thought Sol was the most likely to be that ETH killer. But switching gears, I'm not talking about there is an ETH killer or not, because even Anatoly from Solana says everybody can coexist. They're not an ETH killer. They don't want to be. But there is an angle here. I want to bounce off you. And basically, settlement is a feature that all Byzantine smart contracts have. All chains do settlement. The question is, if ETH could be classified as the global settlement layer, is it possible that there could be a global execution layer called Solana? You could deploy a coin on the cheapest possible settlement layer, for example, Solana, and have, you know, work out from there. Do you believe that's possible? Again, think settlement versus execution. Execution Solana, settlement Ethereum. Well, it depends because the layer twos on Ethereum solve that same problem. I just think it's going to be a blend. I really think that people are trying to frame it too much about what we understand from the internet and less about what we understand from internet businesses where there's millions of businesses solving different problems for different people in different ways. Hmm. Not all cloud storage went to Amazon. In fact, yep. Microsoft is gigantic and Google is gigantic. And, you know, there's so many different ways that I just, yeah, I just don't think of the world in those terms. I did at first think of the world as, you know, is Bitcoin the base layer? I'm just not even sure that's right anymore. It could be, and I'm open to that possibility. Again, I'm not anti-Bitcoin in any way. Um, the answer is, is right now, I, d I don't know. But I think Solana plays a role. Could it be larger than ETH over time? Potentially. Could there be a flippening? Possibly. It depends what people need the network for. And if, it's, if the fees don't get resolved and people want more speed because we want different transactions, maybe Sol. But is Sol fast enough? to solve the securities industry needs because they're all going on blockchain. Well, then you've got something like internet computer, which everybody hates, but it's bloody fast, but it's more centralized. Yeah. Well, maybe that solves the bigger need. 
you know, people frame it so much in terms of Bitcoin and the ultimate decentralized asset. Yes, that's Bitcoin's USP. Nothing else is Bitcoin. So can the internet computers super fast blockchain? I don't even own it. So, you know, there's a lot of haters out there. I don't own it, but I observe that they're building something pretty unique. Yeah. Could that play a big role? Could that be the ETH of the next cycle? Could be. It could also not. It could fail. I don't know. It's got, it's, but it's getting some network effects. And speaking of the rollups, the ZK rollups, et cetera, um, do you think they are a band aid to an underlying problem? Because you don't see Solana having these types of roll ups. But again, as you mentioned, they do sacrifice a little bit of that decentralization aspect. Is there anything wrong with the Ethereum? So look at Bitcoin. It is riddled with its own restrictions because of its perfection in what it does. Yeah. So you have to build the lightning layer to do any transactions because it's useless for transactions. And it can't do big block sizes. It can't do fast. It can't do a lot of things. ETH comes along. It can do all of those things. But now ETH may not be fast enough, good enough, secure enough, whatever, to do different things. So like Bitcoin, we're seeing these things being built on, but it's a bit late. So Ethereum may build some of this stuff on, but it may be used elsewhere, which is kind of what you're alluding to. Probably. But will people stop using Ethereum? Highly unlikely at this stage. Um, but I, I cannot see into the future because once you've got interoperability, if people decide that some other new chain is better, you can basically migrate everything across chain. Yeah, We haven't got our heads around that yet, so chains can die pretty quick. Well, actually, that's coming up later too. You're, <laughs> it's amazing. You're, you're like a sage you can see what's coming <laughs> so uh speaking like i'm very big into the smart contract platform space because i'm a traditional finance guy and i understand the size of traditional finance and i understand disruption and i love DeFi. so uh, it sounds like from your perspective if you look at the say the top 20 top 25 smart contract platforms it won't be winner take all it'll be divvied up based on use cases correct yes Yes, that's exactly how I think of it. I just think the pie is growing yeah. and you can take smaller slices of a pie, but that smaller slice of a bigger pie is still worth a lot of money and it goes up. So it's kind of everybody benefits in a space that I think goes from two and a half trillion to 250 trillion, that 100x. Um, all of those slices of pie may get smaller as a percentage, but they're actually going to be immensely more valuable than they are today. All right. So I spent a lot of time trying to build appraisal valuation models of assets. One of the things that always vexes me is how would I allocate the actual value? Imagine Ethereum's a trillion dollar asset. How would I allocate the value of that trillion dollars between store of value versus utility? Have you ever given thought to that? I have thought about it in Bitcoin. We talked about it in the beginning, you know, mm. the, the pristine collateral store of value versus the call option. I just decided that Metcalf's law works better yep. because that store of value component becomes much more obvious once the um, adoption is more saturated because the pronounced effect, and you could see it in the volatility of the asset, 
is that the call option is currently the main feature. So go back to our conversation earlier. Does it off act like a risk on or risk off? It currently acts like a risk on. Not perfectly. It's not utterly correlated. And it's because with that part of the adoption curve, as you said, we're coming up like this, the exponential part. So it's going to be all in the value of the call option. That's why I'm buying it. Yep. Other people are buying it all for the value of the final adoption, which I, again, I have no issue with, with uh, people... Even the Bitcoin maximalist idea that this could be the the base layer of money for the world. I understand that. I can hold that probability in my head. But it, that has to happen further up the adoption curve because nobody can own a store of value that has a 70% volatility. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to anybody. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. So speaking of another thing that's happening in this very fast-moving, fast-developing world, it's it's a full-time job to keep track of it. If you talk about the cross-chain world, there was an announcement this morning, and I know everybody's kind of like parachains, cross-chains, polka dot, et cetera. But what do you think of the news like Neon Labs, for example, bringing EVM capability to Solana? Uh, and that could truly be that execution and settlement layer. And in this case, imagine you have true cross-chain capabilities, it doesn't really matter what is execution or settlement. The business or the activity will move to the cheapest, most secure chains automatically. Do you see that kind of happening? So that that, that means your thesis of being on the faster horse from day to day will become very important because this space will just <clears throat> change from month to month. Um, so you and I are talking, and I don't know what computer you're on, what internet service provider you're on, um, what software you're running, I know nothing. I just click the button and there you are. Exactly. That is the world we're going into here yeah. with the exchange of value. And I will send you 10 bucks and you will receive it instantaneously. And you'll never think to ask me, what chain did that go across? Mm. What protocol, right? You don't care. So there are certain things that we absolutely don't care where they go. Instant transfer of money. Zero care. Um, certain types of operations just can go to the cheapest thing or the fastest, depending on what you're trying to solve. Other things, we need ultimate, ultimate security. So I think it's, it's going to be, or, or the flexibility of the smart contract system or speed of building on the network or whatever it may be, right? We all have different needs which is why we use different computers, different software, we have different phones, we do different things, we use different service providers. And I think it's just gonna be the same. So interoperability is great. That's the world we know from the internet. People just didn't think of those terms because they came out of Bitcoin and it was Bitcoin versus XRP and then Bitcoin versus XRP versus Ethereum and you know, as it keeps changing. But the interoperable world is where we're going. Everything will move, be able to move cross chains there is a potential that you'll see a migration to a far superior chain, you know, eight years time, something is, is both more secure and faster. Well, that's going to, that's going to win a large part of the market. Yeah. If it's, if it's, if it's ultimately decentralized and it's faster, and maybe that's application that happens on Bitcoin. I don't know. And then things will, will migrate across over time because then it solves everybody's problem. Um, so I don't think it happens instantaneously. It's not like off, on, off, on, you know. I think it's, it happens gradually. Uh, 
which is really what's happening in the space. You know, every person in the space was in Bitcoin to begin with, by definition. Yeah. And then they start migrating to different things when they're looking for different opportunities. Well, I could challenge you there. There's some people that their first foray into crypto is Dogecoin, believe it or not. <laughs> so yeah. that can yeah, happen. That's true. But uh, okay, let's switch gears and talk about Metaverse. First of all, kudos to you. You were talking about the metaverse before anybody was talking about the metaverse. It's like you got Zuckerberg in your back pocket. So boom, you're right there. Now, my favorite metaverse play is Engine because I struggle appraising a lot of the games, etc. And I have I dabble in some other areas as well. Uh, we have some common names that we hold, but what is your favorite play in this space? If you had to pick one or your top three? I don't is the answer for the same reason that you don't yeah. is they're all imperfect. Is the world going to be built out? I, I, let's start this again. Is the world going to be built out? How on sandbox or Decentraland? I don't think so. No. Can they adapt and change and become something different? Maybe. Is that token? The sand, sandbox has become my second largest holding because it went up 20x in a month. I'm like, really, this is ridiculous. Mm. And I strongly believe in the metaverse, but it's not a place. It's a kind of digital state of affairs. So I don't think there's a way to play it as is. I also am thinking through the ownership of digital real estate, not meaning having a metaverse experience like we built a real vision headquarters in the metaverse in crypto voxels i'm more thinking about people are buying real estate because it's next to snoop dog in decentraland or sandbox is that valuable or not i think there is a near zero probability that we're going to be strolling down the street in the metaverse and oh my god snoop dog's next door to to real vision because when you see crypto voxels you're just given a GPS coordinate, essentially, and it takes you to one place. You teleport. Mm. So then what's the value of being in a neighborhood? So I worry that we're very early. I will not be holding my investments in this for a long period of time because I don't have faith that these are the right things. I've looked at Engine as well, also interesting. Um, I've looked at, you know, Wilder, not so interested. I've looked at a bunch of these things, and the answer is, is I really don't know. But one thing we do know, it's most likely that Ethereum is going to be at the center of it for now. Awesome. So Ethereum becomes a decent proxy for the time being. It's not perfect, but that's okay. So and one of the questions I have, because I'm also a little bit of a real estate investor, do you think... <laughs> the meta, well, first of all, the metaverse land sales are beyond comprehension for an old school guy like me. But do you see the metaverse eating into the global real estate market? Do you see people saying, oh, I'm going to buy a 10 unit condo block in Miami versus a piece of land beside Snoop Dogg's house in the metaverse? Do you think that 230 trillion or whatever is market cap of real estate could be eaten away by this new world? Looks like you never got that question before. <laughs> No, I have. The reason I'm pausing is because I'm actually thinking through all this stuff myself at the moment, mm -hmm. and I don't have answers. But the where my I think that digital real estate has value, mm -hmm. much like you can buy a dot com address for a fortune. Yeah. Um, 
I think that there is probably, a con I'm going against what I said before, there is some value in being around other businesses that are similar that you want to be around. But I don't know why. I think it's the affiliation that we're all in Sandbox. That's our platform, as opposed to I'm next door to Snoop Dogg. So I do think this space becomes extremely valuable, but I don't think it's one place. So I'm going around in circles now talking this. I don't know is the answer. I okay. will. I mean, I, I own some, some um, real estate in the metaverse. And I just have to wait and see. So let's, let's switch gears again one more time. When I, I like to look at total addressable markets for certain places. So I guess you're probably digging into this as well. If I look at the total addressable market, for example, DeFi, it's 400 trillion, 450 trillion, no matter which way you skin it. And DeFi could eat 10% of that. That could be a 45 trillion total addressable market. Do you, the total addressable market for the metaverse should theoretically be nowhere as large as the traditional finance market, or do you believe it could? I think it's larger. Wow. I think <laughs> everything, you need to frame the metaverse differently to get your head around it. How I frame the metaverse is that everything is becoming digitized. The everything becoming digitized is the metaverse. Hmm. The fact that you and I can do this on Zoom and we're in different countries was not really very easy to do only a few years ago this is actually a metaverse experience i we've digitized what used to be done in a studio by using digital we used to use digital cameras but we couldn't shuttle the files around because they were huge yeah. and now we can do it with streaming so i don't think of the, the metaverse as this end state i think it's every part of our lives from finance to business models are all being digitized. And the metaverse is that place where in the end, I don't need my physical screens in front of me here. I just have one screen and that I can reposition as my digital space with everything around it. Um, I can, you will be using your phone as your AR. You might use VR. I'm not sure VR is going to catch on as big yet, um, but AR is coming massively. I mean, Apple are already pinging your room 50, 5 million times a minute um, to understand the dimensions of everything you move around in. And all of this is going to come into mapping systems where you can just walk around, you can find everything, you can see everything, the mix between digital and physical worlds. So yeah, I think the metaverse is the end state of, hmm. not the end place, the end state. So I think it's bigger than everything. I think it is where education will end up it's where medicine will end up it's where gaming obviously is it's where platforms end up i think all platforms go into metaverse experiences i don't think we'll have these 2d kind of platform experiences any longer so i think everything ends up there okay let me bounce some valuation numbers you mentioned decentraland now being your second biggest position the value nearly hit 10 billion the other day it's up six thousand percent for the year and I think the active users, when I checked last, is about 1,730 active users, okay? Now, if you take a $10 billion market cap, divide it by that 1,700, 1,900, whatever it is, depending on the day, that's about five and a quarter million dollars per user. If you value Facebook, it's worth about $158 a user. Taking that and extrapolating it out, and I understand, obviously, Decentraline's growing, et cetera, 
but that could place Meta, the Facebook value, based on users at $15 quadrillion. Do you struggle with any of these numbers, or do you believe Decentraland is absolutely crazily overvalued at five and a quarter million per user, or do you think it's justifiable? Because I struggle with this. I, I really struggle. Um, yes, I mean, I, as I said, I'm not in that because I believe that and Sandbox because... I believe in the valuation or I believe that this is the future. I just wanted my toe in the water to mm. feel it. As you said, I, I think it's a bubble. Does it go further? Probably. Um, is Facebook undervalued? Most certainly. Um, so what is Facebook's valuation? Could Facebook 5X from here? Easily. If they execute anything close to what they think they can do. You know, does Dece could decentralized be worth a trillion dollars? It's a long journey between here and a trillion dollars because they need, you know, it's fine to have um, a very high value placed on the number of users, but you need to see the number of users growing rapidly, yep. ridiculously rapid. We're not because there's nothing to do in Decentraland because it's a bloody web address. Um, but you can bring people there for concerts. So once the music industry, which they're already doing, is starting to coalesce people there, then that's different. Maybe you're going to change what we're thinking that people aren't don't have to be regular active users. They just need to go there for stuff. Now, what I'm seeing and thinking about is, okay, let's build RAL's office. Maybe there's a platform, which is your office and your office exists in Decentraland because it's infinite essentially. And we can build all of our own personal spaces there with our Twitter feeds, our video feeds, our this or that personal, private, it's all secured. It's locked. It's yours. Could there be, a billion users of an application like that. Sure. And that would be in the metaverse. Could that drive decentralized, decentralized valuation? Possibly. It's really early to try and spot a trend, I think. Yeah. Would you ever look at equities that underpin the metaverse? So for example, NVIDIA, uh, a very top semi-name, they're now categorizing a new thing called the Omniverse and they want to power it. Do you believe that's an interesting space or stick within the crypto world? No, I think there's, I call it the exponential age. I think there's a bunch of technologies all going exponential all at the same time. Um, and NVIDIA, there's a bunch of others that are, that are doing similar kind of things. That's interesting. You know, Epic Games will go public at some point. You know, Epic Games has a decent chance of becoming a trillion dollar company if they execute the next phase, right? So that's a very interesting space. Um, there's a, there's a lot within this that I think will be investable, whichever format. It doesn't have to be crypto. Crypto is just one of the elements of the metaverse. But um, so, Beautiful. yeah. So I think there's a number of ways to skin the cat, in other words. Great. Now we're going to jump into your wheelhouse, what I call macro. So this is really, really good. I love this quick fire action because I know the audience are going to eat this up. There's going to be more knowledge per minute packed into this video than any other video on YouTube in this space. So let me see. Who wins the centralization versus decentralization revolution? When I talk about that, I mean, you know, with the freedom of information and the way people can get educated for free online through things like YouTube and Twitter, et cetera, we have this CNN and situation, a ton of global frustration that's accelerated this revolution. Who wins? Can the world become truly decentralized as we go forward? No, we're humans. Humans love societal groupings. So they will re-centralize at every opportunity. You're seeing it with decentralized platforms like Bitcoin. It's become a centralized ideology. 
and people say, I want to stay there. We're seeing it with the birth of digital communities. So we've gone, we want to be independent citizens. We're going to hang out online. And what do we do? We hang out in the places that we want to hang out with the people that we want to hang out in. And we accept an organizational structure of rules. So complex adaptive societies always run the same way. They always have the system of rules, potentially a leader or a leadership structure can be a, you know, a, a democratic structure. And there's usually the system of money that ties it together or value exchange. And that happens with religions. It happens with charities, it happens with all sorts of stuff. So I think it's, it's kind of laughable about this decentralized world. Yeah, we're rebels and I'm joining the Board 8 Yacht Club to show it. I'm like, you are just regrouping back again. <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah, great. So let's uh, switch it. Do you see the uh, tenure going above 2% next year? And okay. do, you, do, you, do you think tapering will happen or will it be very gradual Have they paint themselves into a box? Because I don't see the Fed or other central banks around the world having a way out with the endemic world in which we live. The cost of the, the, the penalty for increasing interest rates is too much on the debt burden to service it. And the world has become very UBI dependent to a large extent. So where do you see all this going? I think the trend, I call it the chart of truth, which is the trend of long-term 10-year bond yields over the last 30 odd years is this beautiful channel that just keeps going down and down and down. And that's driven and I've proven over a long time by demographics. Um, and it's driven by demographics and the debt cycle. Um, and, and the debt cycle itself was driven by demographics. So as you correctly point out, when you get to the top of the channel, the reason it doesn't break out is because the debt burden is now too high for the interest rates. So we go to the bottom of the channel again, and that's yet generally a recession comes sometime after, call it 12 to 18 months after. So I don't see it breaking out of that channel. I'm not sure where the top of the channel is currently, but two, two and a bit. Um, but also think through what's just happened is we've raised a bunch of prices at a rate that we've not seen for a long time. I used to use the oil price as a proxy for this. Every time we had this massive rise in the oil price, we go straight into recession soon after, usually came within 12 months. And we've just raised a bunch of prices to people who are up here with debt and their wages don't increase as much. And we'll talk about wages in a sec. Um, and so what tends to happen is they stop spending and you start cementing a recession or, or a growth slowdown. I think we get a growth slowdown in uh, 2022 that people aren't expecting. And I think rates fall back lower. So the tapering will continue for a bit. Then we'll get this growth shock. Then the Fed will probably reprint again um, and try and stimulate. And eventually we'll find some trend rate of growth stability. But again, bond yields are not going higher. The other thing interesting is people are like, but look at wage growth is coming up. A, wage growth is underperforming inflation. So you're actually getting poorer. But more importantly, People are forgetting that the other side of the equation is more people are leaving the labor force than any time in history. Mm. So those people are now not earning money. So their wage growth is zero. Those people are seeing some wage growth, call it 4%. But the offset of the number of people falling off means the net aggregate demand for the total global economy or the US economy is either stable or falling still. So I don't think it's the demand shock, raising wages, inflation, they're going to buy everything. I think it's the opposite of that. Obviously, this new variant is going to hammer supply chains 
again, which will bring about more inflation and slowdown in growth. And do you see a potential of stagflation on the horizon in 2022? I think people look back at stagflation as because it was something that happened in the past. This is not stagflation. This is a specific supply-driven situation where you're bringing a bunch of people temporarily now that were, that were temporarily out of the market back into the market. So what you've created is a supply shock with this kind of weird demand shock. It's not a true demand shock. And that forces things out of skew. That won't last. And we're seeing it in shipping. We saw it in lumber. These things plummet once they start reaching equilibrium prices. So anybody who thinks the equilibrium price has been set is wrong um, overall. This is not a demand-driven increase in prices, which is more kind of meaningful. I think stagflation, what does it even mean? Everybody has a different definition of what, what it what it actually means, slow growth, high inflation. But what they're really harping back to was the tail end of the 70s inflation oil when we prices. had a recession. Yeah, It's a very different <laughs> thing. Goes back to your oil again. Uh, so let's talk uh, Cantillon effect. Do you see additional, say, variant lockdowns, delays eroding the middle class further? You know, the closer you are to the money printing machine, the top 1% get it. I proved it. I proved that. I looked at some Fed stats and I looked at the increase in household wealth. And I tied that directly back to the amount of money printing over the last 24 months. And it's identical. The only difference is it all went to the top 1%. So the question is, do you see this eroding the middle class further? I see everything eroding the middle class further until they're losing their jobs to technology, globalization, access to capital, excess leverage, aging populations. It is a messy situation. I think what's happening in the digital asset world is part of the solution, because once you can have fractionalized ownership, it's irrelevant how rich or poor you are. You can still have 10% of your assets in Fifth Avenue real estate. Right, so what it does is level the playing field. So I think that is coming, but the poor don't have any savings and I don't see that coming back. I do see that digital assets are gonna create a universal basic equity, which is your participation in your communities once they're tokenized, gives you a reward that has value that you can use. So I think that is coming. I do think universal basic income is here to stay in various shapes and forms because we cannot support this group of people um, if technology is eating the world as fast as it is. Um, I buy into that argument. I buy in to the holding out of everything. I, I did just a very long video about why we got here uh, that's on Real Vision that I did with Robert Breedlove. Um, why we got here, how it happened, why it was the law of unintended consequences and why, and why it's very difficult to solve. Now you had, uh, I think you were like me, uh, the wake-up call with Sir James Goldsmith May he rest in peace. You remember that? <laughs> that was a that was one of the most incredible interviews ever. But he was so on the money, and I wish he was alive today to see what's going on. I'd love to hear his thoughts. But does this all lead to a great reset? Do you believe in that concept? No, I don't. Because it, if it was going to happen, it would have happened last year. 
If you shut yeah. down the entire global economy for six months and we avoided the big reset by the trick of monetary debasement, then there is no reset that can happen. It just mm. simply, they have made the decision they cannot allow the collateral layer to go bust. So Excellent. you do that by debasing your currency. The collateral layer is equities, credit, bonds, real estate. So they are not, it is, it is verboten now to allow those to go down. Nice word. So the answer is printing of more money. So what we're seeing is, I think, the actual outcome, which is a migration to this new digital world. So as we all migrate to what we now perceive as, okay, this world of digital assets is a safer place for our savings, investments, and place to build our businesses, then we will migrate over time. So it ends with a whimper, not a bang. Interesting. So I used to say all roads lead to Bitcoin. Now, according to you, all roads lead to the metaverse. <laughs> they do, because that yeah. is the digitization of everything. And it's not this ready player one world, this mm -hmm. dystopian. It's this digital world where we live in digital sovereign states. We live in a sovereign state. So you're in the US, I'm in the Cayman Islands. You know, we pay tax. We do our things that makes us citizens because we're in the physical world. But we also live in digital worlds. Those digital worlds can have different sets of rules, there can be different communities, and many of them will have a system of money. We will live in multiple states at the same time. And if those states online don't treat us well, much like offline, we can move countries. It's harder to lose your passport, but it's easy to get rid of your passport in that world because your passport is your NFT or your social token, and you get rid of it and move around. Those, all those worlds added together that we operate in digitally is the metaverse. So we're all headed there. It's where everything is going. Excellent. Uh, that's, there was some interesting chatter out of the Bank of England and the IMF, all of a sudden expressing a lot of concern over El Salvador. Do you, why do you think these organizations are so nervous? I think the answer is pretty obvious. But do you believe that the IMF has nefarious intents with El Salvador right now, or they simply just hate Bitcoin and they're afraid of becoming too powerful? I think it's a combination of two things. I think it's, I, I think the IMF and others don't like to see their power base erode. Yeah. Nobody likes to see the rebel, um, you know, thumbing their nose at them. So like the, I get the, that. The, the Bank of England all of a sudden being concerned about El Salvador. I've never heard of them ever being concerned about El Salvador. It's going to be no. interesting. Yeah. But also, I think that I'm not sure the El Salvador model was the right model hmm. because it is a dollarized country. It's not like that they are Argentina with a shitty currency. They're dollarized already. So they had currency stability. So what they were missing was payment mechanisms and a developed banking system. Yeah. which a stable coin could have solved. Hmm. So yes, they don't have access to stock markets, but you give them Bitcoin. But the problem is you're giving it to very poor people who don't have necessarily the aligned incentive of holding on to it. Hmm. And if they do, and there's volatility in price, they don't really understand why that happened. So, you know, we see farmers going bust because of grains prices yeah, and they're very volatile and it's hard for them. They don't know how to hedge it. They don't know how to deal with it. So I'm not sure what it's solved. 
in the long term, people who can hold on to it, yes, they can probably generate a lot of wealth. And I, I applaud that. Remittances, there are other ways of doing it. So I'm not sure it wasn't shoehorned in there a little bit early. Um, yeah. Yeah, there so, was, yeah. Yeah, there was an interesting story about a lady down on the, whatever, Bitcoin beach. And her net worth has gone up 300x in the last year since she started doing haircuts for Bitcoin, which has been quite impressive. But I guess there are there are nuanced use cases. Okay, so let's uh, talk about central bank digital currencies. Obviously, there's like a nuclear arms race to get as much of that uh, money disguised as surveillance per Jeff Booth in as quickly as possible. What's your take on this arms race to get these CDB, CBDCs in place? And will they be as dangerous as I personally feel they could be. I see the negatives. I also see a lot of very big positives. Hmm. The very big positive is we are so screwed because of the system of monetary policy is the only tool. Hmm. And fiscal policy is difficult, clunky, and distributes badly across a population. I think that... Central bank digital currencies allow for better use of a behavioral economics at scale. So you can create incentive systems for parts of the economy to do stuff. But also control systems. I understand the incentive one, system part. One, comes with, the, one, com one yeah. comes with the other. And mm. forget about it. If you think you're fighting the battle of freedom, you're <laughs> fucking on Google all day. You're on Twitter. You lost that battle 15 years ago. Everybody thinking their privacy is Google know more about you than you know about yourself. So that battle was lost so long ago, it's almost ludicrous to expect that this is a bigger issue. And you've given it in private hands to somebody else to monetize. So what, how, do the monetize, what are the, how does the state monetize you through taxes? Now, could they create incentive patterns for you to behave in certain ways? For sure, they do it already. <laughs> they do it already. And guess what? It's still a democracy, so you can change some of that. But there, yes, there's elements of control. There's elements of wanting to make sure the population does certain things, as we do now. We find people to make them wear seatbelts. Yeah. It's not that complicated. We, we, we raise the tax on cigarettes, so we smoke less, and then we ban them in places. You know, it's, it, some people hate that. I don't really care. Um, but I am really interested in how I could get money into the hands of the people who need it, or low-cost loans in the people who need it without getting the banking system in the middle how we can incentivize certain parts of society to do better. So I, I just think there's, there's, you know, and yes, they might give rich people negative interest rates and poor people positive interest rates. Well, if you want to argue about the rich-poor divide and the cancel-on effect, you're going to have to get used to it because there's a wealth of distribution coming um, and we need to figure out, okay, and again, what's acceptable? You're a voter. And you can either vote or leave. And I think that's, there will be more mobility of people. I think the sovereign individual in certain respects is right. There, there is a, you know, there, there, there is a reason to move society and you may be able to operate in this global metaverse society from elsewhere if you don't like how your government is dealing with you. But I think it's impossible for us to avoid. So I just kind of accept it. Yeah. Very good point. Uh, now, you did ruffle a few feathers when you were chatting with Robert Breedlove about boomers screwing millennials and the fourth turning happening. You probably got a little bit of a backlash from that. But do you care to unruffle any feathers or shed more light on your thesis 
around future universal income. So the boomers were blessed with investments that they got at a very cheap price. When they were 30 year old, starting to accumulate wealth, they got equities at all-time valuation lows, real estate all-time valuation lows, credit, fixed income, all-time valuation lows. Now, so everyone's like, well, look, they got it lucky, but they actually got screwed because there was too many of them in the labor force. Then globalization came, then technology came and their wages never went up again. So they ended up borrowing money and they kind of destroyed the whole world as they went through. It was all rational decision-making. Nobody did anything nefarious or stupid. They were just trying their best. And because of the set of circumstances of their parents having too many kids, it, everything was stacked against them, which is why these boomers have ended up poor, apart from the, the ones, you know, the, the, the median boomer is broke. They've got $200,000 in their entire net worth. How are they going to live in retirement? They can't. And the millennials, but there are a bunch of very rich boomers too. That skew, right? We know that skew mm. is enormous. The millennials got faced with a different set of problems, but they've been given, so there's the, they're all screwed, but they've been given digital assets. It's like, here's your gift. So I think everybody got screwed out of that whole equation, the post-World War II baby boom. But everyone has a different set of opportunities. If the millennials can get through this one without debt, then they've done something that their parents didn't do. My guess is their marginal propensity to accumulate debt is less um, because you always rebel against what your parents did. Beautiful. Okay, we're at the very last section. Thank you so much for your time on this. You've been incredible. I love your speed. I really love that. You don't wax on for half an hour about one topic. So this is the fun question section. All right, it's like a quick, quick fire round. First of all, if you had one crypto to hold for seven years, what would it be? Uh, Ethereum. Awesome. Okay. You, uh, I love the way you always talk about the tokenization of everything. Is there one asset you would not tokenize? Of course doesn't include living organisms like your dogs or anything like that. Is there one that I wouldn't tokenize? Now, what asset do you believe should not be tokenized? I don't know. I haven't got a strong rejection of something asset being tokenized versus non-tokenized. because I stumped you. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't think you were stumpable. This is actually from a UK viewer of mine, and he asked me to ask you this question personally. Okay. What would you do in, in his situation from this dear English fellow? He's 65 years of age. He has 65,000 British pounds a year in passive income and 100,000 British pounds in the bank earning 0% interest. What would you do if you were him and he wanted to get into crypto? How would you play this? I know it's not financial advice, but he really wants your opinion. Let's go through the numbers again. Okay, 65-year-old. He has 65,000 British pounds a year in passive income and 100,000 pounds in the bank. He wants to get into crypto. What would you recommend? He knows he, he's in well, a way. I don't know his expenditure, hmm. but considering we think the space goes up 100x from here, the best thing is either figure out whether you can invest 5% of your 
annual income and put it into crypto and dollar cost average, which I think is the sensible answer. You could be slightly more risky and take a little bit of a chunk of your your um, hundred grand and put ten grand in, and then dollar cost average in. But yeah. that's the way. What you don't want to do is risk it all at sixty five years old, because the yeah. last thing you want to be is broke at eighty. Yeah. But you want to take some risk that if it all goes wrong, i.e., the market falls fifty percent and stays down for five years, you're like, I'm okay with that. Mm. Um, and what you're then doing is you're going to give the probability of having a good income or a good capital um, pile later in retirement much higher, which is really helpful because the stress of retirees is not knowing how long you live for. Awesome answer. So this is another interesting one. If Solana is the Ethereum of 2017, have you ever run a Solana price prediction? Yes. And I'm, Yes, it just exactly mirrors... ETH 2017. That could be so, $2,000 so a sol. Correct. correct. Wow. Uh, and if that happened and Ethereum stayed where it was, there is potential that Solana could flip Ethereum. Do you think that's theoretically possible? The probability of ETH staying where it is, considering all the conversation we've had, is about zero. Right. Beautiful. Excellent. Uh, regarding timeframes, do you believe because the market is running so fast, it's really impossible to have a five-year thesis on any investment right now. And I know you're in a position where you can swap assets around without tax penalties, but do you believe that that whole five-year thesis of investing in an asset is gone? I know you did say you would hold Ethereum for seven years if you had to hold one asset. Yeah. And I would happily hold Bitcoin. I just thought Ethereum probably do better than Bitcoin. I mean, yeah. Bitcoin, if you want to be in the space and you don't really know what to do and you want to have a long-term investment, Bitcoin's absolutely perfect. Beautiful. Will it go up you know, as racially as it did in the past? No, its rate of return will come down over time. That's okay. It's still good. It's an amazing asset. Final fun question. You ready? Go for it. The background story of the barber chair. I'm sure you've answered it before, but people want to know. So the barber's chair is a 1950s barber's chair that I had renovated and imported for, brought in from California. Wow. I like it because it's quirky. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, you know what? I just want this, something that is out of context normally. And I use it for listening to podcasts or mm -hmm. reading. So this is my office at home. But it was actually in the middle of the lounge at one point, and we had a big party, and we used it as the tequila shot chair. Uh -oh. So you'd lean back, you'd decline, <laughs> and the shots would be poured. So it has had multiple uses, but I, I listen to podcasts on it. If that chair could talk, the stories it could tell would be incredible. Exactly. Well, well, I have nothing but admiration for you, sir, and I so appreciate the time. Do you have any questions for me at all? No, I, well, I, I just liked your – I mean – it's not often I get stopped with not being able to answer certain questions. I've never seen uh, it happen. <laughs> the ones about the metaverse and real estate, I've, really, I've realized I haven't thought it through as far as I wanted to. Um, so that was really interesting. There's some, some stuff. So it was great. It was a really interesting conversation. Well, I hope one day we can do a part two and I can share with you some of my models, appreciation models. And um, I am digging into some of the gaming metaverse plays and some other names. And I'm also trying to build kind of a, five-year portfolio around disruption that includes a lot of crypto names. So maybe we can bounce some ideas off each other as well yeah, in part two. Maybe come, on, maybe come on to Real Vision at some point. So. I would love that, yes. And uh, you're not going to your Vegas show, are you? Or Yes, I am. 
Oh, you weren't going. I thought you were going to sit home for a while. You had no, quarantine I'm, or something. Yeah, I got forced into it by the team. And also because everyone was saying, are you going to Vegas? I'm like, yes, yeah, so I'm going to go to Vegas. Okay, so hopefully I'll see you there. Yeah, right? fantastic. Thank you, boss. Appreciate All right, the take time. care, everyone. Cheers. Bye. Don't forget to subscribe, everybody, as well, to Real Vision. It's yeah, Real Vision Crypto. It's free. I set it up to help educate everybody. Realvisioncrypto.com. So just do it. Awesome.